We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Go episode 36 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, April 9th, 2021. Happy Friday. Good to have you with us as we are fully into spring. Weather has been great lately. I know it's supposed to be rainy on Friday and Sunday, but it's still supposed to be warm. We are officially into spring. Baseball has begun. The Masters is going on and the NFL draft is a coming. 20 days from today is the first round of the draft. Thursday night, April 29th. Today's show is a Washington football team draft special of sorts. You know how ESPN does those sports center specials? You know how sitcoms back in the day used to do very special episodes when tackling difficult topics like a very special episode of Growing Pains or a very special episode of Different Strokes? Well, this is a very special episode of the Al Galdi podcast. So much talk over the last few days about Washington potentially trading up in the first round to take a quarterback, especially Trey Lance. I will explore. I will give you a deep dive, a Bill Callahan-like deep dive into the phenomenon that is so many first-round quarterbacks not working out. And I say that understanding that the hit rate on first-round quarterbacks still is a lot better than the hit rate on non first round quarterbacks. But if you're going to make the massive trade up, you got to understand what you're getting yourself into. I think it's important to crystallize what exactly you're up against if you give up whatever it takes to move up from 19 to four to take, say, Trey Lance. What if it wouldn't be for Trey Lance? What if Washington truly is eyeing Justin Fields? There may not be a more polarizing player than Fields in the draft. I've got the latest proof of that. And what about the opposite of trading up? Trading down. Everybody's talking about trading up right now. What about trading down? What if Washington trades down in the first round to take a quarterback? What if Washington takes a quarterback in, say, the second 
or even third round. There has not been a lot of Washington draft talk regarding the quarterbacks beyond the big five of Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, Fields, and Lance. We're going to spend some time on this installment of the podcast on the next, say, three quarterbacks in the 2021 draft, all of whom almost certainly will be there at 19 and may well be there at 51 when Washington picks in the second round. I'm talking about Kyle Trask, Kellen Mond, and Jamie Newman. Is any one of those guys worth Washington taking? You have your placeholder quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick. You have two young quarterbacks with at least some promise. I believe they have some promise anyway in Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. But are you significantly upgrading what you have in promise if you spend a later first round pick or a second or third round pick on a Trask, a Mond, or a Newman? We shall explore on this installment of the Al Goldie podcast. And we'll welcome on a special guest, Edgar Thompson, Florida Gators football insider for the Orlando Sentinel. He has covered the Gators for years. Edgar can give us great perspective on not just Kyle Trask, but also receiver Kadarius Toney, who so many mock drafts have had going to Washington with that number 19 overall pick. And I'll ask Edgar about maybe the best tight end prospect of the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, all time, however long you want to say, Kyle Pitts. A man so gifted, there are those advocating for Washington to trade up from 19 to 4 to take Pitts. Uh, I think that's nuts. I don't think you ever give up what it would take to move up from 19 to 4 for a non-quarterback. But that is the thing. Trade up to take Pitts. And no doubt, the guy is a freak of nature. And he's one of the most hyped tight end prospects of all time. I will talk Capitals. Another loss for them on Thursday night. 4-2 to the Boston Bruins at Capital Win Arena. What's going on with the Caps here? They've been losing a lot lately in regulation. I will talk Orioles, who lost to the Boston Red Sox 7-3 at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon. A bad Thursday for area teams against Boston. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So offer a conversation about whether Anthony Fauci is the most famous fan right now of a DC team. He is a big Nationals fan, right? Is there a more famous fan of a DC sports team right now than the doctor, Anthony Fauci. I got this email from Ryan O'Connell, okay? And, and we've had a hard time coming up with someone more famous right now than Fauci. Like a lot of you guys have submitted various people, but I wouldn't say anyone right now of those people anyway is more famous in the worldwide famous rankings than Anthony Fauci. Anyway, Ryan via email says, I've got a contender for a WFT fan more famous than Fauci. So I, I don't know if Fauci's a Washington football team fan or not. We know he's a big Nats fan. But okay, Ryan's got a submission for someone who's a Washington football team fan who's more famous than Fauci. And Ryan writes, Mia Khalifa. And then Ryan actually calls for a sound drop. In parentheses, he writes, Rick Ross drop. Huh. Here you go, Ryan. Ah, yes, the boss, Rick Ross. When you hear the name Mia Khalifa, you can't help but do the Rick Ross, huh? Thank you, Rick. Yes, Rick, thank you. Mia Khalifa, 3.6 million followers on Twitter. Now, Twitter followers are not everything. If you walk down K Street and you ask some random person, do you know who Dr. Fauci is? Do you know who Mia Khalifa is? Chances are more people will know who Fauci is than will know who Mia Khalifa is. But hard to argue, right, with 3.6 million followers on Twitter. So an excellent submission there 
from Ryan O'Connell regarding the most famous fan of a DC sports team right now. Also, I got this email from Dave Yanovitz. He writes, I believe if memory serves me right, it was one year ago on Saturday. So he's talking about tomorrow, April 10th, that you did your last morning blitz with Al Galdi show on 980. When you came on and said that, I was like, what? No freaking way. Why? What a huge mistake that was. Uh, thank you, Dave. You are actually correct about that. I didn't realize that until you sent me that email. But yeah, tomorrow, Saturday is April 10th. And I looked it up. The last installment of the Morning Blitz was April 10th, 2020. Of the many, 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 many different time slots that I had at 980. My favorite time slot by far was doing that two-hour Morning Blitz from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. I would have done that forever, okay? I love doing that. It was something different. It was something unique. There was sort of a grassroots underdog component to the show because it was on so early in the morning. You know, I was by myself. We were doing something that most stations don't do that start live and local at 5 a.m. And I really enjoyed it. I really did. The, the, the two-hour morning blitz only lasted for a little more than two years, May 2016 to August 2018. Then it became a four-hour morning blitz when Kevin Sheehan left for a year. Then the show became a one-hour morning blitz when the station brilliantly had me doing this ridiculous split shift. I would be on 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. Then I'd do 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Trust me, you haven't lived until you have three hours to kill at work every day doing nothing, waiting for part two of your work day to begin. Look, it's sports radio. It's not digging ditches. I totally get that. I don't want to whine and complain here. But the split shift thing to me just was a total joke. So yes, the two-hour morning blitz. Uh, I missed that show. That was my favorite show. The show, by the way, made money. The show, by the way, got more downloads per hour than all but two other shows on the station, even though the show didn't get any of the benefits that the other shows got, like broadcasting from Skins Park. There used to be a big thing, like the shows would be out there at Skins Park, would get a bunch of guests from the team, would be broadcast live via web video. So there would be videos of the shows put up on the team's website. The Morning Blitz had none of that and still did well. In fact, this is one of my favorites, okay? The, <laughs> this, this cracks me up to this day. The Morning Blitz at one point was top 10 in the market, and nobody told me. <laughs> nobody told me. The show was, I believe I have this right, because again, I didn't find out until months later, number eight in the DC market in what's known as the demo in sports radio, okay? The demo in sports radio is men 25 to 54. The morning blitz was number eight in the DC market at one point. (laughs) And nobody told me. Why? I don't know. What was behind that? I have no idea. But yeah, one of your shows is top 10, especially a show in this rarely undertaken time slot of 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., and nobody says anything. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah, nobody tells me. Number eight in the market in the most competitive time slot in radio, morning drive. And you don't tell me? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah, I just, I still can't get over that. I mean, you know, look, the past is the past. I, I purposely avoided talking more about the radio stuff since I did my thing on what happened between 980 and myself a few weeks back. But I, I know a lot of you like that. So I thought I would read that email and, uh, Uh, give you a little spiel on uh, the Morning Blitz. But yeah, the radio business is a strange, bizarre business. I was actually talking on the phone with Sheehan the other day, and I'll tell you what I told him. 
There are things that I miss about radio. Okay, I'm not going to lie about that. But there are many things that I don't miss about radio. And what I just talked about is definitely one of them. The odd, self-sabotaging nature of the business in which a station will work against itself for whatever reason. Uh, I mean, you, you don't even tell me the show is top 10. Like, why would you hide that? Why would you conceal that? Like, who does that? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah. Anyway, there are a lot of things I love about doing this podcast. And one of them is we can spend a lot of time on a particular topic like we're about to do with the Washington football team's approach to quarterback with the upcoming draft. All right, so selling a home is stressful enough. What makes it even more stressful is thinking about the money you're going to have to give to the real estate agent. It's your home, and yet this person you just met gets tens of thousands of dollars of your money. Outrageous commissions, a staple in real estate for way too long. That's changing thanks to one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Granlund. What if I told you my guy, John G., with Real Broker, will sell your home for free? That's right, for free. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he's there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure that you're not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you an offer for, say, $500,000, that $15,000 that would normally go to your listing agent stays in your pocket. And then John helps you find your next home. Expansive services at the lowest commission possible, zero. You can't go lower than zero. This changes everything when it comes to selling your home. To find out more about this revolutionary program and to find your home's value, visit this website, johngsellsforfree.com. The website says it all, johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, call John Grandland. Tell him you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, Zero Commission. The phone number, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland's a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan, and he's changing the game. He's changing the way homes are sold in the DMV. John Grandland, he will sell your home for free. All right, so with the 2021 NFL Draft fast approaching here, we actually have something quite significant happening over Friday and Saturday, and that is the medical combine in Indianapolis. There is no traditional NFL scouting combine this year due to, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, but there is what's being called the medical combine. Each team is allowed to have one physician and one athletic trainer in attendance with close to 150 prospects in Indianapolis over the next few days. It's been said for years when it comes to the scouting combine, the most relevant thing about it is the medicals, that you get accurate medical information about these prospects. So that's really what this boils down to here. The NFL has said, well, we can't do a true combine, but you know what, these 40 times and these cone drills, uh, they only matter so much anyway. It's the medicals that matter the most. And so we will at least do the medicals in this 2021 pre-draft process. And so that's what's taking place over the next few days here. So going to be interesting to see, right? Are there medical red flags that pop up about any of especially the major prospects uh, for this draft? But with the draft, you know, I came across something on Thursday that to me just so highlighted one of the real truisms about the NFL draft, especially when it comes to the quarterback position. So the other day I was talking about Justin Fields on this podcast, and I brought up something 
that I saw on an ESPN Sports Center special that aired uh, one week ago now, Thursday night, April 1st. Okay, so Todd McShay, the ESPN NFL draft analyst on this Sports Center special said that he had been told by an NFL team that had studied fields that just seven of his 225 pass attempts in the 2020 season were to a target other than the number one pass catcher on the play. So essentially what McShay was saying was, per a team that had studied fields, basically all of his pass attempts in 2020 were to the primary targets on place, okay? So it wasn't a, a situation where the guy was consistently having to go through his progressions and make throws to, you know, secondary, tertiary options. It was uh, one pass attempt after another to the primary target on the play. And again, this was from McShay per an unidentified team. There's also, though, this, and this has made the rounds over the last few days now, Fields per Pro Football Focus had the number one grade on non-first read throws over the last two college football seasons, 2019 and 2020. And to qualify for that metric in terms of the rankings, you need to have had at least 60 pass attempts. So on the one hand, McShay says an NFL team said 225 Justin Fields pass attempts in 2020, just seven were to a target other than the number one pass catcher. On the other hand, Pro Football Focus says Justin Fields has the number one grade on non-first read throws over the last two college football seasons, and that's for guys, each of whom has a minimum of 60 pass attempts. Now, technically, both of these things could be true, okay? It could be that Justin Fields in 2020 only had seven pass attempts to a target other than the number one pass catcher, but he had many more the previous year, and so he qualifies for this pro football focus ranking of, again, your grade on non-first read throws, minimum 60 pass attempts over the last two years. So it's possible both of these things are true, but obviously each thing is saying a very different thing. McShay's intel from the NFL team says the guy barely ever threw to non-primary targets. The pro football focus thing is saying, no, nobody was better in college football over the last two years when it came to throwing to non-primary targets. Pro Football Focus had the grade for fields on non-first read throws at 90.6 over the last few years. PFF grades are on scales of 0 to 100. So 90.6 is quite good. And just this whole thing with Justin Fields and whether he has thrown a lot to non-primary targets or hasn't thrown a lot to non-primary targets, I just think highlights something very, very simple. And that is, we just don't know, okay? We know nothing when it comes to these NFL draft prospects. We may think we know, We can cite all kinds of numbers. We can reference all kinds of things. We can watch all kinds of film, as Joe Gibbs used to say. But at the end of the day, we just don't know. And these teams don't know. And to that end, when it comes to quarterback, it is amazing, right? The extent to which teams continue to swing and miss at the quarterback position in the first rounds of these drafts. I went through a little exercise for you, and I wanted to share the findings of this exercise uh, on this podcast. So I looked at every quarterback taken in a first round of an NFL draft since 2010, okay? So the last decade plus, the last 11 years, and I put each quarterback into one of three categories, hit, miss, or mixed slash too early. Okay, because some guys, it's it's hard to tell. You can't just say hit or miss. It's kind of in between, either because it was in between or because it's just too early, like the guy just got going. 
Okay, so I looked at each quarterback and I just dropped each guy into a bucket. Okay, so 34 total quarterbacks have been taken in the first rounds of NFL drafts from 2010 through 2020. Guess how many qualified as hits in my little exercise here? 11. 11 out of the 34. Less than a third. And that's with me being generous on some of these guys who qualified as hits, okay? So here were my findings real quick. My 11 hits in terms of, again, first round quarterbacks, 2010 through 2020, okay? And we'll go through these alphabetically. Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, Andrew Luck, Patrick Mahomes, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Cam Newton, Ryan Tannehill, and Deshaun Watson. And as you can tell, I was very generous with some of these. I mean, Joe Burrow has played one season. He got hurt in the middle of the season, right, in that game against our team. But I'm qualifying him as a hit because he looked pretty good, and I do think it's going to work out. But, you know, a year from now, we could look at Burrow very differently. But yeah, for now, I will count Joe Burrow as a hit. I counted Baker Mayfield as a hit. He's been up and down, but he is coming off a good season. It may well be that he's finally arrived. So I'll go ahead and count Baker Baker, the touchdown maker, as a hit. And yes, I put Ryan Tannehill into the category of hit, even though he was a bust for the Miami Dolphins, but he's done quite well with the Tennessee Titans. So I'll even call him a hit, even though you could argue I shouldn't, because again, things didn't work out for him with the Dolphins. But even with me being overly generous, 11 out of the 34 first round quarterbacks, 2010 through 2020 are hits. That's it. Less than a third. Conversely, the misses, the flat out whiffs, 18. Here they are. Sam Bradford, Blake Bortles, Teddy Bridgewater, Sam Darnold, Blaine Gabbert, Robert Griffin III, Dwayne Haskins, E.J. Manuel, Johnny Manziel, Jake Locker, Paxton Lynch, Marcus Mariota, Kristen Ponder, Josh Rosen, Tim Tebow, Mitchell Trubisky, Brandon Whedon, Jameis Winston. Okay, now some guys here are better than others. And some guys here could ultimately change how they are viewed. Okay, if Sam Darnold kills it with the Carolina Panthers, we will not view him as a bust. If Dwayne Haskins ultimately succeeds, right, he's with the Pittsburgh Steelers on a reserve slash future contract, we can alter how we view him. But for now, those to me are 18 misses, 18 first round quarterbacks who have not worked out for whatever reason, right? I mean, some of these guys have gotten injured and that certainly hasn't helped, okay? But all of these guys are not what you would call successes. All of these guys are not what you would call hits. And you really can't even say mixed at this point. It just hasn't happened with them for whatever reason, okay? 18 misses. And then when it comes to the category of mixed slash too early, I put five guys into this category. Jared Goff, who, remember, did make a Super Bowl. I mean, everyone's down on Goff now. And certainly Sean McVay fell out of love with Jerry Goff. But the guy did make a Super Bowl. I can't just call him a miss. Daniel Jones, you know, still trying to figure that out. Jordan Love, we have no idea on him. Tua Tungavailoa, mostly unimpressive as a rookie, but it was just a rookie season. It's not like he played in all 16 games. Uh, You know, time will tell on that. And Carson Wentz. I I call Carson Wentz mixed because for at least a few seasons, he was good for the Philadelphia Eagles. 
But that's what you're looking at, man. The last 11 drafts, at least as things stand now, 34 first-round quarterbacks, a mere 11 hits, 18 flat-out misses, and five kind of in-betweens. That's what you're dealing with here with taking a quarterback in the first round. And that's better than taking a quarterback outside the first round because the hit rate on non-first-round quarterbacks is even worse than the hit rate that I just outlined for you. More on that hit rate for non-first-round quarterbacks coming up in just a bit. So we've been discussing, right, Trey Lance, Justin Fields. What about Washington trading up from 19 to 4? Atlanta Falcons want to move out from that number four pick, at least if you buy into the tweet that was put out the other day by ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter. We on Thursday's podcast discussed what the former NFL executive Michael Lombardi said in an installment of his podcast, the GM shuffle that dropped on Wednesday. Quote, I think Washington is going to be the next team to unload all their picks to try to get a quarterback. I think they love Lance. I don't think I know Washington loves Lance. End quote. And you've had all this conversation in the area over the last 24, 48 hours about, well, what about it? Trey Lance, should Washington trade up? Will Washington trade up? What would it take for Washington to trade up? This is what you're looking at, people. 11 hits. That's it. Out of 34 first-round quarterbacks over the last 11 NFL drafts. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Richard Perrin. Regarding WFT moving up in the draft, I'm against spending what it would appear to take to get up to number four. The price is simply too high. The thing that would make me pause is the decision to do so being arrived at by the new brain trust and not Snyder. I think it's a really good point, and I'm with you on that. I just look at this, and I say to myself, what it's going to cost to go from 19 to 4 is exorbitant, and especially given the uncertainty that exists with the likes of a Lance or a Fields, I just don't know how you can be certain that either guy will be the guy, and so you're giving up a horde of draft picks for someone who is, I don't know, 50-50 at best, and even that may be generous. But I will concede, and I'm with you, Richard, on this. If this happens, and it's because Ron Rivera, Marty Herney, Martin Mayhew, Scott Turner, Ken Zampezi, Chris Polian, they are convinced that, say, Trey Lance is the guy. Like, they know Trey Lance is going to work out. They really feel it. Trey Lance is going to be Washington's franchise quarterback for the next 10 to 15 years. That would make me feel better about things. And it's the kind of thing where I would say, well... You're paying an awful lot to get this guy, and you better be right about this. But the fact that you believe this this strongly, that does give me some confidence. It does. And it would be exciting. There's no question about that. If Washington does this, if Washington trades up from 19 to 4, takes Trey Lance, like, we're going to be going nuts over this. No doubt. I like Trey Lance. I'm very intrigued by Trey Lance. But to give up what it's going to take to move up from 19 to 4, you're not going from 8 to 4. You're going from 19 to 4. That's a huge leap up. That's a sky-high price that you're going to have to be paying. But yes, given what we've seen here from Ron Rivera so far, there is a benefit of the doubt that he gets. I don't get the sense that Ron wants to trade up. I don't get the sense that Washington will be trading up. But if it does happen, you do say to yourself, well, at least the person engineering the trade-up is someone who's established some credibility here with what's gone down over the last year. Email from Kyle. Kyle is a lawyer, and he sends me some lengthy but very well-written emails. Kyle, you're not billing me for these emails, are you? Anyway, uh, writes Kyle, assuming the team loves Trey Lance, it almost has to take a big swing and trade up for him, even if it misses. 
by winning the week NFC East last year and getting the 19th pick in the draft instead of a top 10 pick if the team did not win the division, the Skins are in a position where in order to draft a top-rated quarterback, they are forced to trade up. Unless their goal is to win between seven and nine games every year and finish in the middle of the pack, it makes no sense to sign a guy like Fitzpatrick without having a young potential future franchise quarterback behind him. Conversely, it makes all the sense in the world to have Fitzpatrick start for a year or two with Lance waiting in the wings. Of course, there is a ton of risk giving up what they would have to give up to draft him. And certainly there are no guarantees with Lance, given his lack of experience and lower level of competition he played at. But unless the skins totally flop this year and get a top five to 10 pick next year, they are going to have to take a risk at some point to get a franchise quarterback. Why wait? I think Riverboat Ron has the balls to do it. Uh, I hear you on this. I don't disagree with a lot of what you said. I am a big believer in you have to behave boldly. You have to behave aggressively. And if you really believe in someone or something, go after that someone or do that something. What I'm saying is, though, would you be doing this because you feel like you have to do this or because you truly believe in the guy? And if the latter is the case, you truly believe in the guy, then do it. But understand what you're up against. The recent history with these trade-ups into top fours, top threes to take quarterbacks isn't good. And I know what happened with, say, a Mitchell Trubisky or a Sam Darnold shouldn't impact how you evaluate what might happen with a Trey Lance, but it's hard to ignore this. All of these trade-ups for these guys, they're not working out. There's just so much that can go wrong. I mean, football is a sport where you are so dependent on system, on environment, on teammates, on injury, you know, on how a guy will react to being a pro. Like, you know, you take someone like a Dwayne Haskins, there's no predicting that he's going to end up being what he ended up being from a work ethic standpoint, where he is essentially gifted the QB one spot going into the 2020 season, and he's not showing up to meetings on time. Like, who does that? How do you predict something like that? So it's just, there's a lot that can go wrong. The potential pitfalls are many. And especially with a guy like Trey Lance, who only had one true season of college football, played at an FCS school in North Dakota State. Like, I mean, how can you be certain about this? How can you feel like, okay, this is going to work out? Like, I hope it does, but how can you know that it's going to? Sometimes it's best to say, this is just not the year to do this. We'll try again next year, okay? And there's also this. What if you don't have to trade up from 19 to 4? to get your next franchise quarterback? What if your next franchise quarterback will be right there waiting for you at 19, maybe even 51, and maybe even beyond? So as bad as the hit rate has been on first-round quarterbacks, the hit rate on non-first-round quarterbacks is even worse. I did another exercise on Thursday. I did all kinds of exercises on Thursday. I said, okay, who have been the non-first-round quarterbacks who've become franchise quarterbacks. And I casted an even wider net. I said, okay, let's start with 2000 because that's the ultimate example of a non-first round quarterback becoming a franchise quarterback. Tom Brady, right? Sixth round pick in the 2000 NFL draft. I could only come up with six guys, six non-first round quarterbacks who've become franchise quarterbacks in terms of guys drafted since 2000. And those six guys are Tom Brady, Drew Brees, 
Kirk Cousins, yes, I am calling him a franchise quarterback, Dak Prescott, Tony Romo, and Russell Wilson. That's it. Those six. And understand, one of those guys, Breeze, was the first pick in the second round. Drew Brees was taken by the San Diego Chargers, number 32 overall in the 2001 NFL draft. That was back when the NFL only had 31 teams. That was a year before the Houston Texans got going. But otherwise, that's the list. A mere six guys in terms of non-first-round quarterbacks who've become franchise quarterbacks when looking at those quarterbacks drafted since 2000. So the notion of, well, we can just, you know, spend a pick on a non-first-round quarterback. Yeah, you can. And it can work out. You know, we have seen it work out somewhat so in recent years with Dak and Russell Wilson. And yes, Kirky. I'm a little bit more process oriented. Yes, thank you, Kirk. But those guys by far are the exception as opposed to the norm. So perhaps you caught this. This came out about a week ago. Uh, ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay and his mock draft 4.0 that came out on April 1st, actually predicted the first two rounds of the 2021 draft. He did continue to have Washington taking the Virginia Tech offensive tackle Kristen Derisow at number 19. But McShay also had Washington taking Texas A&M quarterback Kellen Mond in the second round with the number 51 overall pick. Wrote McShay, quote, the next best quarterback was out of range for Washington in round one, but selecting Mond, who could sit behind Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke all season, here is smart. His accuracy and mechanics will have to develop, but Mond has arm strength and the ability to extend plays, end quote. Now, interestingly, McShay in this Mach 4.0 had the Florida quarterback, Kyle Trask, going with the very next pick in the second round, number 52 overall, to the Chicago Bears. So I thought this would be a good opportunity here on this Friday to get into Trask, Mond, perhaps uh, someone else in Jamie Newman who's gotten some run and say, okay, what about the notion of Washington taking one of these guys in the second round, maybe taking one of these guys in the third round, maybe trading down in the first round and taking one of these guys? Wouldn't that be something? If instead of trading up, you trade down, acquire more assets and still end up getting a quarterback who ends up being good for you. So we all know how this is right now with the quarterback class for 2021. There is a very clear top five, not necessarily the order of the top five, but just who the top five guys are. Everyone has Trevor Lawrence number one. There is variance beyond that between numbers two through five. But in some order, right, you're talking Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance. Those are the five guys who routinely are being projected to go in the first round, but you're not seeing other quarterbacks going in the first round. The next two guys for sure, in terms of like the consensus opinion on this quarterback class, are Kyle Trask at number six, Kellen Mond at number seven. Okay, and you can always find variants with this, but by and large, that's the way these guys are being ranked. The deal with Mond is especially intriguing because he does seem to be someone, and I stress the word seem because we just don't know, he does seem to be someone, though, who is rising. Jim Nagy is the executive director of the Senior Bowl. He tweeted the following on April 1st, quote, all the talk on outside continues to be on the big five, parentheses, Lawrence, Wilson, Fields, Jones, Lance, but there's growing buzz inside the league on two quarterbacks, Stanford's Davis Mills and Texas A&M's Kellen Mond. Both are seen as potential starters. Neither 
is getting out of round two, end quote. Jordan Schultz, an NFL and NBA insider for ESPN, he this past Saturday evening tweeted the following, quote, quarterback Kellen Mond is a name gaining steam. The former Texas A&M star ran a sparkling 4.56 and showcases big time arm talent capable of making even the toughest NFL throws. Executives I've spoken with have come away impressed by Mond's arsenal of tools and robust athleticism, end quote. These are two different guys, two different tweets. It may ultimately mean nothing, but there is a sense right now that the stock of Kellen Mond is rising. And it's interesting when you do the compare and contrast between Mond and Trask, because they're two very different guys. Kellen Mond is basically a ton of physical tools, but ultra raw. Kyle Trask is not really that many physical tools, but he's someone who is seen as being much further along in terms of quarterback development. Kellen Mond at the Texas A&M Pro Day on March 30th measured as being 6'2 and 5'8", 211 pounds. The biggest concern with Mond by far is his accuracy, okay? If you just go by straight completion percentage, Mond over his four seasons at Texas A&M completed just 59% of his passes. And he had 1,358 pass attempts. So you can't say, well, it's a tiny sample size. It's like, no, 59% completion rate over nearly 1,400 pass attempts. That's not very good. Pro Football Focus has a stat called adjusted completion percentage, which is a version of completion percentage that takes into account drop passes, passes thrown away, spike balls, passes batted at the line of scrimmage, and passes on which the quarterback was hit as he threw. It is a more sophisticated version, clearly, of completion percentage. Mond in the 2020 season was number 84 among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS in adjusted completion percentage. Mond, over the last two college football seasons, 2019 and 2020, for Pro Football Focus, had the worst completion percentage among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS on passes of 20 or more yards downfield at 29.5. There are many things that matter when it comes to playing the quarterback position. To me, nothing matters more, though, than accuracy. This point-blank period. When you throw the football, does it go where you want it to go? And a quarterback who is inaccurate can wreck you because it doesn't matter if that quarterback is making the right decisions. It doesn't matter if that quarterback is gifted physically big time. If when the guy throws the football, it doesn't go where he wants it to go, you're in trouble. You know, and we saw this again with Dwayne Haskins, going back to him. Like he had a massive issue with accuracy and it was to me by far his biggest problem in terms of on the field. When he threw the football, it didn't go where he wanted it to go. He, I mean, he couldn't complete checkdown passes. We saw that, right? His accuracy was a huge issue, primarily because of mechanics. Mond has mechanical issues, and the accuracy is reflective of that. I mean, these are some brutal numbers regarding Kellen Mond and his accuracy. There's also this. So Pro Football Focus will grade quarterbacks when they're under pressure. Also will grade quarterbacks, though, out of clean pockets. And clean pocket grades for quarterbacks have been shown to be the most stable way of predicting quarterback play. Mond, among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS, had the following rankings in clean pocket passing grade. Number 50 in the 2019 season. Number 26 
in the 2020 season. So that is improvement from 50th in 19 to 26th in 2020, but that's obviously not great. Now, there are things to be intrigued with regarding Mond. Four-year starter at Texas A&M. So this is a guy with experience. Mond is a dual-threat quarterback. To me, right now, in this NFL, you want your starting quarterback to be mobile, okay? Nothing matters more than how you are as a thrower of the football, no doubt. But being mobile, threatening opposing defenses with your legs, that allows you to be a better thrower of the football. Quarterbacks who can run can dictate coverage, and Kellen Mond can run. He ran a 4-5-6-40 at that Texas A&M Pro Day. For comparison's sake, Cam Newton at the 2011 NFL Scouting Combine ran a 4-5-6-40. So Kellen Mond, if you buy into the 40-time at the Texas A&M Pro Day. And these 40 times at these Pro Days, they are considered always unofficial. So, uh, you know, you take them perhaps with a grain of salt. But Kellen Mond, at the very least, is in Cam Newton territory in terms of speed. Mond over his four seasons at Texas A&M, 22 rushing touchdowns, became just the third quarterback in SEC history with at least 9,000 passing yards and at least 1,500 rushing yards, joined Mississippi State's Dak Prescott and Florida's Tim Tebow. Speaking of Mond's Pro Day, I really like this. Mond did something so unique at that Texas A&M Pro Day. He took charge and he purposely did things that were his supposed weaknesses. Mond compiled his own Pro Day script, did not rely on a private quarterback's coach. Mond, at his Pro Day, took nothing but under center snaps, right? Playing at Texas A&M, he's almost exclusively working out of the shotgun or pistol. He took nothing Mond did but under center snaps at that Texas A&M Pro Day. And Mond hit the ground running, okay? He immediately challenged himself at the Pro Day. He went from warming up to throwing a bunch of medium to long distance passes, deep posts, go routes, over routes, digs that came back between 18 to 20 yards. Like, to me, you really have to respect this. Kellen Mond challenged himself at his Pro Day. Kellen Mond demonstrated a moxie at his Pro Day that most guys don't demonstrate. Kellen Mond did not play it conservatively. He understands the questions about himself. And so he wanted to showcase himself in a way that said, hey, I get what the criticisms and concerns are. Let me show you what I can do. And every indication is he did well at this pro day. So you got to respect that. And, And it's not just about like, okay, he does do this well. We didn't think he could do that well. It's also about the guy's got some gumption to himself, some character to himself. There aren't a lot of guys, like I said, who would do this. And yet Kellen Mond did that. I give him a ton of credit for that. I mentioned the Senior Bowl. Kellen Mond was the MVP of this year's Senior Bowl, to whatever extent that matters. And Kellen Mond had an accomplished career at Texas A&M. He came out of it as the school's all-time leader in total offense, passing yards, passing touchdowns, completions, and pass attempts. Here, to me, is the deal with Kellen Mond. The tools are there, but the performance, very clearly, is not, at least not yet. Kellen Mond is someone who you look at and you say, If you feel like you can coach him up, he could end up being a stud. And I tell you, Josh Allen's success with the Buffalo Bills gives you hope with a guy like Kellen Mond because Allen came into the NFL as a very unpolished product with major accuracy problems. And yet look at what Josh Allen blossomed into this past NFL season. Now, I'm not saying Mond is going to be Allen and I'm not saying they are perfect comps, but there are similarities there. And what you would have to do with Mond clearly is coach him up well, let him sit, let him learn, let him develop, and maybe a year or two from now, the guy is good to go. 
This is where having a Ryan Fitzpatrick does help. It does afford you the luxury of taking someone like Amond, who you believe could end up becoming quite good. And obviously with Mond, it's not someone you're going to have to spend a number 19 overall pick on. Then there is Kyle Trask. So Kyle Trask at the Florida Pro Day on April 1st measured as being 6'5 and a quarter and 236 pounds. Kyle Trask is that classic, traditional, big pocket passer. Uh, Kyle Trask had a monster 2020 season. Over 12 games, 43 touchdown passes versus eight interceptions, 9.8 yards per pass attempt, a 68.9 completion percentage. Kyle Trask is an unapologetic downfield thrower. Trask in the 2020 season on throws of 20 or more yards downfield for Pro Football Focus, 35 of 69 for 1,497 yards. That's 21.7 yards per pass attempt, 16 touchdowns, and no interceptions. You don't have to worry about Kyle Trask being a check down Charlie. He was throwing the football all over the place at Florida. You want the big play. Kyle Trask is adept at providing the big play. But there are definite questions about Kyle Trask. He benefited greatly by throwing to maybe the best pass catching core in the FBS. I mean, that Florida pass catching core, you had the freak tight end Kyle Pitts. You had the Tyreek Hill-like receiver and Kadarius Toney. You had a big play, big receiver and Trayvon Grimes. And here's the thing. When those guys weren't available, Kyle Trask was awful. Kyle Trask in that Florida Cotton Bowl game 55-20 loss to Oklahoma this past December 30th. In that game, Florida was without Pitts, Tony, and Grimes. They all didn't play, and Trask's performance suffered big time. He went to 16-28 for just 158 yards, no touchdowns, and three interceptions. I mean, realistically speaking, the performance could not have been worse. Kyle Trask, you could argue, got completely exposed in that Cotton Bowl game without his top three weapons in Pitts, Tony, and Grimes. Also, Trask in the 2020 season, for whatever reason, and I'm not quite sure what this uh, is about, but per pro football focus, ranked just 50th among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS in completion percentage on throws of no more than 10 yards beyond the line of scrimmage. So interestingly, Kyle Trask in 2020 was great on the deep ball, but actually wasn't good, at least statistically, on the shorter passes. And there's also this with Trask. He isn't mobile, okay? At the Florida Pro Day, Trask ran a mere 5.140 yard dash, and Trask in the 2020 season totaled just 50 rushing yards. That's it. Mobility isn't everything for a quarterback, like I said, but you'd like to have it. You'd like to have at least some of it. And today, to me, if your starting quarterback isn't mobile, and we just went through this this past season with Alex Smith, that is a major hindrance to your offense. The ability to present your quarterback as a run threat on those read option looks is invaluable. The ability for your quarterback to scramble, to turn a broken or busted play into say a five-yard gain or a 10-yard gain or something more is invaluable. And just looking at the NFL now, like you look at the top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL this past regular season in ESPN's total QBR, okay? Let's just go through them and see how many of these guys are mobile. Aaron Rodgers, one, mobile. Patrick Mahomes, two, mobile. 
Josh Allen, three, mobile. Ryan Tannehill, four, mobile. Ryan Fitzpatrick, five. I won't call him mobile, though we can run a bit, but for for the purposes of this exercise, I'll call him non-mobile. Drew Brees, six. Okay, not mobile. Lamar Jackson, seven, mobile. Russell Wilson, eight, mobile. Tom Brady, nine, not mobile. Baker Mayfield, 10. I'll even say that he's not mobile, even though he can run. But like so many of the top quarterbacks these days can motor and you get outside the top 10, like Deshaun Watson, 12th, mobile. Justin Herbert, 13th, mobile. Kyle, Kyler Murray, 14th, mobile. Like you get the idea. The best quarterbacks in today's NFL, by and large, not totally, but by and large, are guys who can run. If you're drafting someone who can't run, that's a knock on that guy. And if he's not a very good runner now in his early 20s, what's he going to be like five years from now, 10 years from now? So that's the knock to me on Trask. Uh, the lack of mobility, in addition to, again, was this guy largely a product of those around him, Pitts, Tony, and Grimes? If you're asking me Mond versus Trask, I mean, I'm not in love with either guy. I think if you really feel like, though, you can turn the physical tools of Mond into what you believe he can be, then I think Mond is the play. But the tough thing is, I don't know that you can do that. I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done with Kellen Mond. You know, he may be a multi-year project, and there aren't a ton of examples in recent NFL history of multi-year projects working out. Like, I don't know really that you count Josh Allen as a multi-year project. He was starting pretty quickly, and it's not like he was just awful. You know, like you were able to do some things with him. And then this past year, obviously, he took off. Mond is not at that point. Like if you if you had to start Mond in 2021, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Like I think at least with Trask, you could start him in 2021. I, I just feel like with Trask, I mean, he's just a pocket passer. And that's, like I said, that's not like that's, oh, he's just this. Like that's, you can't do anything with that. But you are limited, I think, with the ceiling with a guy like a Kyle Trask. There's one other guy I want to throw into the mix here. And then we'll get to our special guest, Florida Gators football insider, Edgar Thompson of the Orlando Sentinel. So Jamie Newman, uh, the Georgia quarterback, who interestingly performed at the Wake Forest Pro Day on March 31st. Jamie Newman played for Wake Forest for three seasons, then transferred to Georgia in January 2020, but he opted out of the 2020 season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So it, it's been a weird last year or so for Jamie Newman. He, at that Wake Pro Day, measures being 6'2 and 7 eighths at 234 pounds. You know, Newman is someone who some people do like. I think it's really hard to have faith in Newman. We haven't seen the guy play in so long. There are tools there, though. Uh, Jamie Newman in the 2019 season, over 12 games for Wake Forest, number two among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS in grade for pro football focus on deep throws, pass attempts of at least 20 yards at 96.5. Only LSU's Joe Burrow was better on deep throws for PFF in 2019. But the concerns with Newman, like I said, he hasn't played in a while. He, in his collegiate career, played in just 19 games, had just 506 pass attempts. Uh, Newman did not have a good Senior Bowl week or Senior Bowl. He struggled in practices during the Senior Bowl week this past January and then struggled in the Senior Bowl itself. And there are questions about Newman, like there are with Trask, about how much he benefited from those around him, especially this receiver, Sage Surratt. Uh, when Newman was at Wake Forest, the best receiver at Wake by far was Sage Surratt. And when Surratt wasn't playing, he suffered a season-ending shoulder injury in November 2019, Newman's numbers plummeted. 
Uh, Newman over his time at Wake per ESPN had the following numbers with Surratt on the field versus Offit. Total QBR, 74.7 versus 40.5. That's a huge difference. Touchdown passes versus interceptions, 29 versus 6 versus 6 versus 8. Huge difference. Yards per pass attempt, 819 versus 716. Completion percentage, 63.5 versus 53.7. It's hard to ignore those disparities. Jamie Newman was a much different quarterback with Sage Surratt versus without Sage Surratt. Now, you can play this game with a lot of college quarterbacks. Like, what is Mac Jones without all of Alabama's various weapons? I understand that. But you always have to be careful with this stuff and say, okay, is this guy really that good? Or did this guy simply benefit from playing with someone who is really that good? But this is what you have to be thinking about if you're Washington. Mond, Trask, Newman, maybe the kid out of Stanford, Davis Mills. It's not just about Trey Lance and Justin Fields. It can be about all these other guys. And the idea of trading down to take one of these guys, the idea of taking one of these guys in the second round or even third round, those ideas exist. Like you are allowed to do those things. Should Washington be entertaining doing one of these things? That's the question. We're going to welcome on a special guest right now who can give us great insight into one of these prospects, Kyle Trask, and also talk about someone who's been mocked to Washington a ton, Kadarius Toney. Well, in our continuing quest to try to figure out what makes the most sense for the Washington football team with the number 19 overall pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Edgar Thompson, Florida Gators football insider, for the Orlando Sentinel. Edgar can give us a great perspective on Kyle Trask, Kadarius Tony. Edgar, it's great to talk to you, man. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Nice, nice, beautiful day down here in Florida. I live in Gainesville, actually, even though I work for the Sentinel. I've been based in Gainesville off and on, got 20 years almost now. Wow, that's very cool. I can only imagine how much fun it must be to cover Florida football. That That, that must be a really cool job. Oh, it's great. I mean, college football in the SEC and in the South is just, it's another deal, man. It's like nowhere else. I mean, obviously the Big Ten has a few of those kind of programs, and there are a couple in other leagues for sure. But the SEC, almost every school, the the passion, the the stadiums, just just the live-or-die nature with the fan base, uh, you know, a lot of these places don't have pro sports teams. They're smaller towns. You know, it's like you're always taking a connecting flight. <laughs> but uh, so it's not like big cities. So this is their thing. I mean, Gainesville becomes a, a, a happening, you know, six, seven times a year uh, when Gators play football. So it's it's a big deal here, man. And they live and die with those Gators. Well, and we know a big deal this past season for the Gators was the quarterback, Kyle Trask. Certainly seems very likely Trask will be available to Washington, at least with that number 19 overall pick, maybe even in the second round at 51. He had a monster 2020 season, did not, though, end well with that performance in the blowout loss to Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl. I guess just generally speaking, what would Washington be getting in Trask were it to draft him? They'd be getting an incredibly cerebral player for one, which is not like a way of like masking uh, physical deficiencies because it's, oh, he's a game manager. Oh, he's a great decision maker. Well, he's that, but he's also extremely talented as a prototype size. I mean, the guy's 6'5", 240. 
um, he's going to be able to, you know, hang it. He hangs in the pocket. I'll tell you, that kid will hold that ball to the split second. He needs to get rid of it. Uh, he goes through his progressions. He, he had to wait a long time now. I mean, this guy sat for three years plus before he finally got his shot. And he didn't spend that time sulking or exploring his options or getting, you know, fat and lazy. Uh, he worked and he learned and he figured out, uh, what he needed to know and improved where he needed to improve. So when his opportunity arose, he was ready and seized it. And I'll tell you, man, the Gators have a rich tradition of quarterbacks. They have three statues outside the swamp for Tim Tebow, Danny Werfel, and Steve Spurrier, Heisman winners. Rex Grossman, he was a runner-up and had a phenomenal record-setting season himself. Kyle Trask broke all their records last year in a season. Most touchdown passes, most passing yards in a single season at Florida. Now, the game's obviously changed, but Dan Mullen, who's a spread attack guy who wants RPOs, wants QB runs and all that stuff in his offense, he changed, too, to alter the offense around Kyle Trask and his skills, and he took it and ran with it. Yeah, he had a terrible cotton ball. Um, a lot of guys had opted out. I think the energy just wasn't there within the team. I think the energy with Kyle, it was the one time he did not show up ready to roll because I think he almost maybe felt let, let down. I mean, all his teammates just kind of left him hanging. Yeah. He's out there with a bunch of receivers he didn't have timing with, didn't have rhythm with. All his best guys were sitting on the sideline or sitting back home watching the game. So I throw that game out. The guy was terrific from beginning to the SEC title game against Alabama, which the last thing they're going to get is a guy who doesn't quit, who's got grit. I mean, that game they were down 35-17. It was like, oh, man, Bama's starting to pull away. Kyle just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and he's just a fierce competitor. And he's got really everything you really want other than this big league arm. But his accuracy, anticipation, all those things are, you know, superlative. So you mentioned the Cotton Bowl performance. The, the, the knock on Trask or a knock on Trask would be, well, you know, he was throwing to Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony and Trayvon Grimes. And so Kyle Trask, at the end of the day, was a product of those around him. To those who say that, you would say what? Well, I mean, Mac Jones, I mean, he threw the better receivers than Kyle Trask, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and people are talking about this, that, and the other with him. So Kyle, he is, he's not, I mean, 51, I mean, he'll be there, I'm pretty sure. He might fall all the way to the third round. I mean, Mel Kuyper today came out, apparently had him 106. So I was think that's a little low for him. But he's definitely out on the outside looking into that top five. You know, when you get into Wilson and Lawrence and, and Lance and Fields and Jones, I mean, he's on the outside looking in there. And there are people that, you know, here at Florida, teammates, even coaches, Dan Mullen's like, look, you're going to look back 10 years from now, and he's going to be in that top five. This coming from a guy who coached Alex Smith, who coached Tim Tebow, who coached Dak Prescott. I mean, this is a guy who has coached some great college quarterbacks and two guys still hanging around the NFL, Smith and Prescott, who just signed a, a record deal. So Dan knows quarterbacks. He has a lot of faith in Kyle Trask. And what I'll say about Dan Mullen is like people are like, oh, yeah, what's he going to say? Dan Mullen doesn't say stuff. I mean, look, he's he's 
can be disingenuous just like any human being and coaches particular spin things. There's no reason for him to go out on a limb for Kyle Trask right now. He believes Kyle Trask is going to, is going to be a, a very good NFL player. And there are a lot of signs that point toward that. I mean, in the end, you have to get in the right system. You got to get good coaching and you need supporting cast. And that's for most any NFL player. Certainly there are guys who can go to any system, any team, any coach and thrive, but those people are rare. Talking with Edgar Thompson, Florida Gators football insider for the Orlando Sentinel. Trask in 2020 put up big numbers on deep balls, especially. Is that what he does best, throwing the deep ball? He certainly got nice touch in those seam routes and things like that, but I wouldn't say that he's a man, you know, he doesn't just bomb it out. I mean, this guy is really good on the intermediate stuff is what I like. I mean, he can throw that like 18 yard end and out. I mean, he can make those throws, and I mean, he's got the arm for it and the anticipation, as I keep saying. I think I've used that word a couple of times now. He is really good at seeing things, and he makes reads before the snap. Best case scenario, so he's eliminating a progression or even two by the defense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Five options, he already knows one is not going to even be there. That guy, that one's gone. He is really astute. He's very smart. He has a master's degree, graduated early, then he got a master's. I mean, he's a smart kid, a studious kid, and I will say this, man. I mean, th- this guy, if he gets into a situation, and I don't know that Washington is, is that, where they're not going to need him to play immediately, and he can take his time uh, and, and really integrate and, and – you know what I mean? Really learn the the nuances and the ins and outs of a system. He he could be a real, real effective player down the road. If you're just going to throw him in there and expect him to save the franchise by week eight, uh, that can scar anybody. Uh, I don't know that he's up for that, but I mean, not many are. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I think that's part of why Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick, so that if they take Kyle Trask, you know, they do have the luxury of sitting him for at least a little while. You mentioned Dan Mullen altering his offense to fit Kyle Trask. When it comes to Trask's mobility, I mean, we know he's not lightning quick. How is he, though, when it comes to escaping pressure? He ran a 4.98 at the at the pro day, which actually isn't. People think that's slow. Go try to run a 5-second 40, even you young guys that are listening and think you're in shape. 5-second 40 is still moving. So if you get a step on a guy and he's going one way and you're going the other, you can pick up a first down pretty easily if you're running that fast. Um, he's not going to – they're not going to be calling tons of, you know, RPOs for this guy and expect him to run like, you know, Robert Griffith or whatever back in the day. But, I mean, I, you know, I think that he's really a very, very good in the pocket, right? Kind of like – I'm not comparing him to Kyle Brady and Peyton Manning, of course, or Dan Marino, but those guys were amazing at within a confined space, moving, staying on their, keeping their feet under them, holding the ball high, seeing downfield, making decisions, getting rid of that football. That's playing pro quarterback in the pocket, man. The game has changed certainly since, since those guys all played or began in the game in Brady's case, but you still got to move within that confined space really well. And it takes great footwork. And Kyle has that. And Dan has praised that many times. 
One of the great duels in the SEC this past season was that Florida 41-38 loss at Texas A&M on October 10th. I'm, I'm just curious, do you have a take on Kellen Mond as an NFL quarterback? Because those two were going at it in that game. Yeah, uh, that was the best game that, that guy's ever played in his life at that point. So not a big Kellen Mond guy. Um, I might eat those words. I would take Kyle Trask, you know, 10 times before that guy. But I, I think that he's mobile. I mean, I don't, I think he's, you know, has some potential, but man, he had a lot of time and a lot of starts at AM, right? Yeah. A lot of opportunities and it really didn't, I guess it came together for him this year. I, I don't want to, you know, to besmirch the kid. I mean, he, you know, he had a, he had a good college, very good college career in the end, but man, he had a lot of opportunities. I mean, Kyle Trask played, started like 20 games. Mine's probably started almost 50. So I don't know. I mean, he certainly took apart the Gators that day, but the Gators defense was historically bad this year, historically. Most points allowed by a Gator defense since World War II. Uh, that defense broke down repeatedly without Kyle Trask, because you talk about Kyle Pitts. Kyle Pitts played seven and a half games this year. He was unstoppable when he played, but Kyle Trask was carrying the load a lot for this offense. I mean, he had other guys, Kadarius Tony, Trey Grimes, had no run game, and Kyle Pitts was hurt at times, and he was shouldering the load a lot of the time, Kyle Trask. So you mentioned Kadarius Toney, the Florida receiver. A lot of mock drafts have had him going to Washington at 19. It is so exciting to watch this guy. I mean, he was utilized, obviously, by Florida in so many different ways. Pass catcher, ball carrier, punt returner, kickoff returner. So much to like. Is there anything not to like about Kadarius Toney? I mean, look, I'm I'm a body of work guy. Um, Like, hence my comments on Kellen Mond. Um, Kadarius Tony's body of work would scare me a little, but my God, last year might be one of those cases where the body of work, it's kind of like, man, this kid, the light went on for this kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're not trying to be hypocritical and play both sides, but there are cases like that too. And maybe that's a Mon, maybe that's Mon's case. We'll find out. But in Kadarius Tony's case, I believe that to be the case. He found something. Um, I don't know if it clicked in for him or he finally decided, look, I'm putting in the time because this is my last shot. And he went from a guy who you could not rely on him to return punts, for example, because he dropped punts or he would drop passes. So everything had to be like bubble screen-ish and things like this, right? Easy catches to where he'd be running down the seam or doing things and just, you know, high-pointing the ball on the run. It was like some unbelievable catches this kid made. I'm like, where is this coming from? It was unbelievable. This kid really worked his tail off and let his incredible natural athletic ability finally come together. In addition, learned how to run routes crisply, be where he's supposed to be because the big knock on Kadarius Tony is he was just a quote get it to guy end quote where it's like just find ways you know shovel pass one to him bubble screen him one you know throw him a slant maybe or a drag route right run a jet sweep perform I mean that stuff's all well and good at the college level pros are going to sniff that out and the speed goes to a whole nother level there too 
So, I mean, he's fast and very elusive. I mean, he's a total ankle breaker, but you know, you got to be a jet to be able to do that. And he's very fast, but you know, I don't know about that in the NFL all the time, but so he learned how to run routes and be where he was supposed to be because coaches until this year really couldn't trust where he, that he knew where he was supposed to be or that he was going to work within, work within the framework of the play. And he could run like 60 yards and gain four <laughs> or run 35 <laughs> yards and lose eight. Yeah. I mean, literally. No. He was that kind of a guy. So he, he is, he's a special talent in terms of explosiveness and bend and agility and accelerating out of cuts and my god the way he can turn and twist in his body i mean my god we're all end up in the chiropractor if not surgery watching this kid i mean trying to do what he does but i i like him he was exciting as heck to watch he had 12 total touchdowns last year one rushing one on a punt return 10 receiving i mean he can do it all he can really add some wrinkles to your offense. Um, I like him a lot, but I know some people, even on the beat, are a little skeptical just because, you know, we've seen a lot of him. I mean, we've seen his warts. Last year, though, there were no warts to be found. You had a lot of good things to say about Kyle Trask as a guy. Where are we with Kadarius Tony as a guy? I tell you, there's some, you know... A couple of years ago, he got caught with an AR-15 in his car that was loaded uh, in the back seat. There had been some deal over on campus where frat guys or whatever, dorm people were in it with the football. These football players, I don't know about you, Al, but the last person I'm going to go pick a fight with is a football player. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I don't need (laughs) getting broken in half here. But... um, some guys want to go do, do that on campus. It's amazing the baiting and stuff that goes on. You, you hear about it at the NFL level, too. It's like, huh? I mean, it's not just beer muscles. I mean, sometimes it is. But so there was a whole situation over there. Tony got Im- involved in it. I don't know. that. I don't know how that's going to play out with NFL teams. I'm sure it's come up because it's been out there publicly. He's a rapper. Okay, he loves to rap. Pretty talented at it by all uh, accounts. I'm not a rap guy, so I have not tuned in to see. Um, so whatever. I mean, he has some outside interest, I guess. But I think, man, look, he's an extremely talented football player. It seemed to switch one on. As I said, the light went on and this stuff was all, um, the gun thing or whatever was before all of that. So. The other issue potentially with him, man, is he missed a few games his freshman year with a rib injury, mm-hmm. and then he had a shoulder injury his junior year. So 2019, he missed like six games with a shoulder injury. So durability, six feet, 195. I mean, he is put together. I mean, this kid is all muscle, just chiseled. But you know, durability is an issue potentially with a guy that size. If you're going to really get him you know, get it to, uh, use him as a get it to guy and have him run out of the backfield and do things like that. Cause I'm the biggest Percy Harvin fan you'll ever meet, but durability became a huge issue with Percy when he got to the NFL just cause of size and, and the way he played. I mean, he played a hard nosed game 
at, you know, 198 pounds. It just doesn't cut it in the NFL. Yeah, no doubt. Talking with Florida Gators football insider Edgar Thompson over the Orlando Sentinel. Just a few more for you. Appreciate your time very much here. So the tight end, sure, Kyle man. Pitts, uh, the hype for Pitts going into this draft really has been off the charts and justifiably so. I mean, a potential top five pick, you know, being lauded as the best non-quarterback in this draft. Like I said, he did miss some time due to injury this past season. I guess, is is that the only flaw with this guy? I mean, is is there any reason to doubt that Kyle Pitts will be a great NFL tight end? I mean, you can't ever, never say never. But if you're talking pretty much sure things in this draft, I don't know one that's more sure. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, I mean, sure, I guess. I mean, I think he's phenomenal. Uh, Kyle Pitts, man, is 6'6", runs a 4'4", something, bench, the other day, bench pressed 225, 22 times at 6, you know, 245 pounds. It's pretty strong, man, for, for that size of guy. I mean, he's really put in the work to develop his body. He's a very good route runner. He's got an extremely, you know, high capacity when it comes to, you know, um, the scheme and knowing, you know, how the game's played and where to be and finding openings in the defense. He's very good at that. And he catches everything in sight. And he can high point it like, you know, LeBron James dunking a basketball. I mean, he can get up there. So the guy, the guy is an unbelievably complete package. Now, inline blocking, he certainly improved at that. Uh, I don't think teams are going to Look to him to do a ton of that, but he, he's capable and he proved that he was, could become more of a complete tight end. He was determined to do so. Credit to him because he could have just been, oh, I just want to be Calvin Johnson and split out, right? I mean, he, he's willing to stay in there and engage, but he's, he's just terrific. I mean, the guy's unreal. I think he had one drop all year last year. Tony, same. And, he just, they have to get extra fitted gloves for him. He's triple XLs or something. His hands are so big. He, he's a freak, man. He's yeah. a freak of nature, truly. And he gets everything he deserves because he's worked really hard for it. And he was, you know, this is what he was born to do. Like Tony also, but I mean, he's got, you know, six inches on Tony. Um, uh, he is, he's an unbelievable, he's got six inches on Tony and probably runs like not even a full second slower. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really amazing. The other major Florida receiver, Trayvon Grimes, uh, what do you think about his pro prospects? He's big, but he's not projected to be drafted until day two or even day three. Why is that? I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say a kid who's six, four or five. With his leaping ability, explosiveness, um, all these things, good, good dependable hands is a dime a dozen. But in a way, he kind of is, you know, does not stand out from probably a, a pack of guys. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's probably, I don't have a list in front of me, but there are probably a lot of receivers who are six, two and a half, three to six, five that are pretty dang talented, that can high point the football, that have some explosiveness. And there's just a little something missing with him in terms of maybe athleticism. He's got a lot of athletic skill, but in terms of just there's a, like agility or I use that word bend a minute ago, maybe that. 
that you hear that yeah, he's maybe not quite great there. But I mean, we're just nitpicking here, man. We're talking about a guy's a you know, top 120 player in the draft, probably easily top 120, I would think. And I mean, he can help a team. I mean, he's going to make a team and help a team. And he and he plays special teams. He's willing to line up and go down there and be a gunner. He's willing to get on kickoff and go down there and tackle a guy. And that matters too. Um, he was played for a championship high school program in Fort Lauderdale, St. Thomas Aquinas, big time championship program, played at Ohio State before transferring here. He's been here, so he's been in winning cultures his whole career. So he can bring that too. I mean, this is a kid who expects to win, you know, expects success. So that rubs off on teammates. Last item for you. We had Steve Spurrier here as the Washington football team head coach for two seasons, 2002 and 2003. Uh, it did not go well, but it's hard to ever be mad at the old ball coach, which is kind of the way that he is. I- I'm just curious, is Steve Spurrier still as revered as ever in Gainesville? Obviously, he ended up going to South Carolina and coaching against the Gators in the SEC, but uh, is Spurrier still regarded as well as ever down at the University of Florida? Let's put it this way. He's the Gators, quote, ambassador of sports, which comes with an office over there in the swamp and a, a, a nice old six-figure salary oh, wow. to, to basically work on his short game most days. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think that he fundraises, which I thought was part of it, but he's got gravitas like nobody in this region, period. He's opening a restaurant in Gainesville, in fact, Spurrier's. And it's gonna, it looks like it's gonna be pretty sharp. I saw someone shoot some photos of it and put them on Facebook the other day. A girl I know in town who works for like a catering deal looks really sharp. Uh, you know, he'll do well with that. Uh, he's got the Midas touch, man, whether it's, you know, with, uh, playing, playing quarterback, coaching offense or, you know, j- just, you know, glad handing people in town. I mean, people love Coach Spurrier. He's got all the charm, you know, you could want. I see him on the golf course all the time. He'll just go like motor and pass you. Hey, coming through, coming through. And just zip right up to the, zip right up to the tee box in front of him. The tee's in the ground. He's already swinging before it's almost like he's standing up. I mean, he plays fast, but you know, yeah, he's a, he's always going to be a legend here. Nobody holds that Redskins thing against him other than maybe Dan Snyder. Because I don't think Steve even knew what he was getting himself into. I mean, he went up there and took his whole staff from here, guys who had no NFL experience. I mean, he didn't even realize that you, you know, he, he thought you had like multiple practice fields and you'd have scout teams and all. He didn't realize you got 61 guys, including the practice squad. <laughs> I mean, like he shows up and didn't really, there was a lot of little just basic logistics, yeah. you know, that I, I don't, he thought he was just going to draw up plays, you know, and outwit guys and, you know, it worked in the SEC, and, and he is a legend at this level. But, hey, it's it's hasn't turned out well for a lot of guys up there, including Nick Saban. So what can you say? Yeah, well, we got to know a lot of ex-Gators here in Washington. Shane Matthews, Danny Werfel, Chris Doring, the list went on and on and on. But, <laughs> uh, it did, like I said, it didn't go well, but it's hard to ever be that angry at the old ball coach. Just He has, as you know, this charm and this charisma about him to where you just, you just kind of shrug it off and laugh. So uh, that's how it is. No doubt about it, Al. Yeah. Well, listen, Edgar, I appreciate your time so much. Great insight into all these Florida NFL prospects, and uh, nothing but the best, man. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. 
All right, good stuff there from Edgar Thompson, including the Steve Spurrier discussion. The old ball coach, I mean, it did not go well here. There's no question about that. But it's still hard to be mad at the OBC, given just his overall demeanor. Okay, we wound up 5-11. and 11. Not very good. No, 5-11 and 11 was not very good. Speaking of not being very good, what's going on with our Capitals here right now? Another loss in regulation on Thursday night. 4-2 the final to the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena. The Caps suffering their fourth regulation loss in six games. This off having suffered just two regulation losses over the team's previous 18 games. Caps fall to 25-11-4. And also on Thursday night, two bad results elsewhere. The New York Islanders beat the Philadelphia Flyers 3-2 in a shootout. The Pittsburgh Penguins won at the New York Rangers 5-2. So as we speak on this Friday, the Caps are second in the East Division at 54 points. Two points behind the Islanders. Two points ahead of the Penguins. Six points ahead of the Bruins. The East Division is bunched in quite tight, and you do have to say it's not so much just a three-team race. You also have to factor in the Bruins. I mean, this really is a four-team race with the Caps, the Isles, the Pens, and the Bruins. So this game on Thursday night for the Caps is lost to Boston. The game was nuts from a special team standpoint. I don't know that the Caps have played a game this season that's been this eventful from a special team standpoint. The Caps went two of seven on the power play. Yes, seven power play opportunities. The Caps gave up a shorthanded goal. The Caps also gave up a power play goal. They went three of four on the penalty kill. But it wasn't just those things. The two teams combined for 13 minor penalties, including eight by the Bruins. Yeah, you lost a game in which you had seven power play opportunities and the opposing team committed eight minors. Of the game's six goals, three were power play goals and there was a shorthanded goal. So you just had two of the six goals as even strength goals. And the Caps trailed in the second period 3 nothing, then scored two power play goals over a 20-second span in that second period, but then gave up a power play goal in the third period. The puck possession battle ultimately was about even, but we got there in not the most direct of ways. Each team dominated one of the first two periods before a pretty even third period. And the Caps got dominated in the first period. Caps lost that first period 2-0, had just nine shots on goal to the Bruins 17 in the first period. Per natural, Statrick had just eight five-on-five shot attempts to the Bruins 21 in the first period. This was another instance of a slow start for the Capitals. That has been a problem for the Caps this season. There have been kind of two larger issues for the Caps in terms of how games have gone. One is the Caps not playing a full 60 minutes. Two, and these two things are related, is the Caps getting off the slow starts. And this was another instance of that. You're down 2 nothing in the first period, 3 nothing in the second period, and you get walloped in the puck possession department in the first period. The ice was tilted over the first 20 minutes. There's all kinds of traffic in the Caps' defensive zone. Now, things were better in the second period. The Caps won the second period 2-1, had 14 shots on goal to the Bruins' 7. And this wasn't just a function of the Caps having a bunch of power plays. The Caps in the second period, per natural stat trick, 15 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 6. So the second period was better, but you're kind of like, did it have to be as bad as it was in the first period? Goaltending was lacking on Thursday night. Ilya Samsonov was the cap starting goaltender, and Samsonov was not at his best. He stopped just 28 of 32 shots on goal. He, per natural stat trick, went 4-6 of on high-danger shots on goal, 9-10 of 10 
on medium danger shots on goal and 13 of 14 on low danger shots on goal. So he gave up two high danger goals, a medium danger goal, and a low danger goal. And what happened early in the game, and we just talked about the slow starts, how about Samsonov giving up a goal 33 seconds into the game? And this was not one of these goals where like, well, the play in front of Samsonov really left a lot to be desired. Samsonov gave up a goal on a shot by the defenseman Jeremy Lozon from the left point. And somehow, and I'm still not sure how this happened, the puck just like trickled through the five hole of Samsonov and into the net. The, the puck was in like slow motion, and yet somehow it found its way into the net, and the Caps, 33 seconds into the game, are down one nothing. Uh, the shorthanded goal was a thing of beauty by the guy who scored it, Brad Marchand. 409 into the second period, gave the Bruins a 3 nothing lead. You had a turnover in the Caps' offensive zone, resulting in a two-on-one breakaway on which Marchand put on a beautiful toe drag in the left circle to force the Caps defenseman Justin Schultz to fall on his stomach. All right, Schultz is flopping like a fish on the ice there while skating backwards. And then Marchand glides into the low slot and beats Samsonov with a backhanded shot. I mean, that, that was an outstanding sequence there from Brad Marchand. But to give up a shorthanded goal, that's one of the great buzzkills in all the sports when a team is on the power play and instead ends up giving up a goal. The giving up of the shorthanded goal is always a kick to the gut. So it was not a great night for Ilya Samsonov. Um, and it was an odd night for the Caps forwards, especially Alex Ovechkin. Alex Ovechkin had the Caps' worst five-on-five shot attempt percentage in the game per natural stat trick. Ovi on the ice on Thursday night in five-on-five situations. The Caps in those situations. So Ovi's on the ice five-on-five. Just eight shot attempts for 15 shot attempts against. So that percentage for Ovechkin, 34.78. Worst on the Caps in the game. Also, Ovi had a plus-minus rating of minus three. But he did have a goal. He had a power play goal, 10.08 into the second period to cut the Caps deficit to 3-1, scoring on a one-timer from just above the left circle off a feed from the defenseman John Carlson during a five-on-three power play. That was a missile that Ovi unleashed on that shot, and that was another one of these milestone goals for Ovechkin. His 266th career regular season power play goal, surpassing Brett Hull for the second most regular season power play goals in NHL history. Dave Andrichuk, Number one at 274. So Ovi is eight away from the all-time record for career regular season power play goals. That, that is a tremendous accomplishment. Ovi gets 266 with that goal in the second period. And that was the 20th goal of the season for Ovechkin. So there was another milestone achieved with that goal from Ovi. He becomes just the eighth player in NHL history with at least 16 consecutive 20 goal seasons and just the fourth player with at least 16 consecutive 20-goal seasons to begin his career. How about that? 16 straight 20-goal campaigns for the grade eight. I mean, that's something else. That 16. Like, it's one thing if you do like five straight 20-goal years or 10 straight 20-goal years. Homie's got 16 consecutive 20-goal seasons, and they are all of his 16 NHL seasons. He has begun his career with 16 straight 20-goal seasons. That's amazing when you think about that. Uh, TJ Oshie had the Caps other goal. Uh, Oshie had a power play goal, 10-27 into the second period to cut the Caps deficit to 3-2. Oshie also had the secondary assist on the Ovechkin goal, but that Oshie power play goal, similar uh, to the Ovechkin power play goal, uh, Oshie's goal coming on a one-timer, this a wide-open one-timer from the left circle off a feed from Carlson during a five-on-three power play. So two primary assists for John Carlson 
on Thursday night. But Oshie, like Ovi, uh, some brutal puck possession numbers. Oshie had the Caps second worst five on five shot attempt percentage in the game per natural stat trick. So, you know, this was a performance where you did some good things, right? The power play scored a couple of goals. You had that very good second period, but overall bad start to the game, bad goaltending in the game, and just some sloppiness too. Peter Laviolette during his virtual post-game press conference talking about this. The Caps play in the neutral zone especially has left a lot to be desired. And with this recent run, you know, a couple of games against the Islanders, this game against the Bruins, the schedule for the Caps has stiffened. You know, you haven't just been feasting, uh, or at least you haven't been able to just feast on the likes of the New Jersey Devils and the Buffalo Sabres here. Uh, the Caps are, you know, I don't want to say like they're reeling or anything like that. That's probably overstating it. But, you know, you are now over your last six games, 2-4-0. and oh. You know, we're not used to that. The Caps for the entire year have 11 regulation losses. Four of the 11 have come over the last six games. Uh, oh, by the way, some changes have happened for the Caps over the last few days here. So Richard Ponick was put on waivers. Uh, Ponick did clear waivers, so he's now on the Caps taxi squad, but that was notable. Also, Laviolette shuffled his defense pairings on Thursday night. We hadn't seen that in a while, but Dimitri Orloff and John Carlson made up the first pairing. Brendan Dillon and Justin Schultz, the second pairing, and Zdeno Chara, Nick Jensen, the third pairing. So the Caps, they are back in action on Friday night at the aforementioned Sabres at seven. So hopefully a get right game for the Caps at the lowly Sabres. They are the worst team in the NHL this season. A mere 24 points, nine, 24 and six is Buffalo with a goal differential of minus 47 on the season. Worst in the NHL. And then the Caps are at the Bruins on Sunday night at seven. And all of a sudden, these games against Boston loom large, like the Bruins are a factor in that East Division. So the Capitals lost to Boston at home on Thursday night, and the Orioles lost to Boston at home on Thursday afternoon. What was the home opener? A 7-3 loss to the Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, where there were 10,150 fans officially in attendance. Great to see that at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon. Remember the Maryland Governor Larry Hogan back on March 9th lifting slash easing a number of COVID-19 induced restrictions in the state. And among the changes was large outdoor and indoor venues could begin operating at 50% capacity. Now the O's on March 12th said they would begin the 2021 regular season by allowing about 11,000 fans per game at Oriole Park, so operating at 25% capacity. But there you go, 10,000 plus fans at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon. It was great to see that. You could certainly hear them. Uh, Trey Mancini certainly heard them when Mancini came to the plate for his first plate appearance. So it was great to see that. Uh, it was not a great performance, though, for the Orioles, as you might expect. The O's, remember, began their season with a three-game sweep at Boston, but since then have lost three of four, including this game on Thursday afternoon. It was start number two for Matt Harvey as the number two man in the Orioles rotation. Four runs in five innings, gave up seven hits, a homer, three doubles, and three singles. Also issued a walk, did have five strikeouts, ultimately threw 84 pitches, but he had a rough first inning. Harvey struggled big time in giving up two runs in the top of the first. Gave up a one-out double to Alex Verdugo, a two-out, two-run homer to Rafael Devers on a bomb to right center. A projected 452 feet that home run went per stat cast, and Harvey wasn't done. He then gave up a two-out double to Kristen Vasquez on an 0-2 pitch, then issued a two-out four-pitch walk of Marwin Gonzalez, but was able to escape without giving up 
uh, any more runs. Harvey did then throw four scoreless innings, so it's not like this outing was a total lost cause, but Harvey uh, did get charged with a couple of runs in the top of the six of beginning that inning by giving up back-to-back singles. That does bring us to the Orioles' bullpen, which was not good. Uh, Paul Fry allowing those two inherited runners to score in the top of the six. But ultimately, for the game, five Orioles relievers combined to allow three runs in four innings. Uh, Dylan Tate, Sean Armstrong, and Tanner Scott combining to allow three runs in three and two-thirds innings. You did get a perfect inning from Wade LeBlanc. And then there is the offense. And how about what's going on right now with the Orioles offensively? A major league record already has been set by the O's, and it's not the good kind of record. Already, the Orioles have reached a level of historical futility in this 2021 season. The O's struck out 14 times on Thursday afternoon, set a major league record in becoming the first team to strike out at least 13 times in each of five consecutive games. As Steve Spurrier would say, not very good. No, it's not. No, it's not. And it's not just the strikeouts. The O's aren't getting on base. Just five hits and a walk on Thursday afternoon. Now, there were some bright spots. And this really is the way to view the Orioles season. They're not a good team. They're not going to have a good record. But you focus on the younger players, especially, and hopefully guys who are doing some things. So Ryan Mountcastle, your starting left fielder, number four batter, two out, two run, opposite field homer to right center in the bottom of the first off the Red Sox starter, the former Oriole, Eduardo Rodriguez. Remember, it was Eduardo Rodriguez who the Orioles traded to Boston in 2014 to acquire Andrew Miller. Uh, Pedro Severino, the starting catcher, the number six batter, the former Nats prospect, a one-out first pitch, opposite field solo homer to right field in the bottom of the fourth off Rodriguez. And Pedro also had a single. It's interesting with Severino. He has become, for the Orioles over the last few years, the catcher Severino was supposed to be for the Nationals. Like Severino at one point was viewed as the Nationals catcher of the future. It never happened with the Nats, but he's actually done a nice job with the Orioles over the last few seasons. Trey Mancini, this was by far the highlight of the game in terms of the feel-good moment. Uh, of course, Mancini, right, missing all of 2020 due to colon cancer. A great standing ovation prior to his first plate appearance. He was the Orioles starting first baseman, their number two batter. And the standing ovation wasn't just from the fans. It was also from the Red Sox. The Red Sox are very classy in allowing for Mancini to have that moment. The Red Sox themselves were clapping for Mancini. So that was cool to see. And then later in the game, Mancini had himself a single. But I think the highlight of the game from an Orioles standpoint was the catch by Cedric Mullins. If you did not see this, make it a point to to find this. This was a spectacular play. So Cedric Mullins is the Orioles starting center fielder, their leadoff batter. He had an outstanding season opening series in that three-game sweep at the Red Sox. And he had himself another single actually on Thursday. But Cedric Mullins in the top of the fifth made a spectacular diving catch in left center to rob Kike Hernandez for the first out. And the thing about the catch was this. It wasn't just that he dove to make the catch, Mullins did, okay? Because sometimes diving catches are overrated because if you get a bad jump on a ball or you take a bad route to a ball, you can end up having to dive when you shouldn't have had to dive. But Cedric Mullins on this play begins in right center and then sprints all the way over to left center to make the catch. So Mullins was positioned all the way in the right center field portion of the outfield, gets a great jump on the ball, runs like crazy, gets to left center, and then makes the diving catch for the ball. It was funny. Mountcastle, the left fielder, basically had to dive in holding up to not crash into Cedric Mullins. But that is Mullins' ball because of Mullins' speed and defensive aptitude. And that was just such an impressive play 
that Cedric Mullins made uh, in reeling in that catch. O's are off on Friday. Game two against the Red Sox, Saturday night at 7.05. Bruce Zimmerman versus Garrett Richards. Game three, Sunday afternoon at 1.05. Jorge Lopez versus another former Nats prospect. And Nick Pavetta, the man who the Nats traded to the Philadelphia Phillies for, yes, the D.C. Strangler, Jonathan Papelbon in 2015. As for the one and two Nationals, uh, they begin their three-game series at the Los Angeles Dodgers Friday afternoon at 410. Joe Ross versus Walker Bueller. And then after that, who the heck knows? Uh, we are awaiting and hoping for the Nats to get back some of these guys who are out due to COVID-19 protocols, but we just have no idea right now. And so such is life where two of your last three games here are going to end up being started by Eric Fetty and Joe Ross. This is what you're you're facing right now with the Nats. And it's Ross on Friday versus Walker Bueller, who is the Dodgers' best pitcher. Clayton Kershaw has the resume and is going to be going into Cooperstown. We'll see with Bueller. But right now, Bueller is the Dodgers' ace. And so that's who you're having to face in game one of this series at the reigning defending World Series champion, Dodgers. Well, that will do it for you and me for now. If you missed my chat with Ryan Fitzpatrick mentor and former Washington quarterback Gus Farad, check it out this weekend. It was on the Wednesday installment of this podcast, episode 34. Remember, you can always find past episodes of this podcast uh, wherever you find this podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. So weekend, always a good time to catch up on some things that you may have missed. Keep the feedback coming. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.